And welcome to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. I'm Bart Gregory, along with Charlie Winfield. It's game week now. The Dogs taking on Long Beach State. They changed the game time earlier this week to play in a 2 o'clock game on Friday, 2 o'clock Saturday, and then 1 o'clock Sunday. Those are the slated game times. Of course, that could change with the possible weather. And now we are joined by the man who not only made the 40s, he cleared his 40s yesterday. Hey, happy birthday yesterday, Charlie. Well, thank you. Yes, now into my... What, completed my fifth decade, so I'm now in my sixth, right? That's right. You have cleared your 40s, and now we have to wait 10 years to see if you can clear your 50s. Well, one thing I'm learning is that you clear things a whole lot faster than it seemed like when you were a kid. Absolutely. One of the things as a kid that you couldn't wait to clear was the week leading into opening day. And so Friday afternoon at 2 o'clock, you and I are going to jump in the booth behind home plate We're going to talk baseball. I can't wait for it, man. I've been waiting for this for a long time. Man, I have too. I really thought that with the College World Series and everything that it would seem like baseball was happening just right once again. But it's been kind of dragging on us a little bit. But finally getting here and, look, I'm excited about this team. I think the range of possibilities for this team range from making a regional to winning it all. I think – that's true for a lot of teams. I, look, I think college baseball last year may have been the most competitive year we've ever seen. I think this year is going to be right there with it. We are still dealing with a big backup of talent and players as a result of that extra eligibility, as a result of that shortened draft that they had a couple of years ago. Look, man, there's still a lot of talent in this league. And with the transfer portal, more and more coming into the league every year. We've got a new guy. LSU's got a new guy. Arkansas's got new guys. It's going to be a really tough year, and there's going to be some very good teams at 500 in this league. You and I have talked about this kind of extensively, about how hard it is to win in baseball because you have so many different teams that are so good. It's about getting hot at the right time of the year. You know, I went back and watched the College World Series championship game, the Game 3, and, and Kyle Peterson was talking about, hey, seeing Mississippi State in Hoover compared to seeing them right now. And that's the thing about baseball is you're going to have your up and downs, man. You're going you're gonna to leave some weekends where you sit there and say, I don't know if we're going to host. I don't know if we're going to make the tournament. That's the thing about this game. There's such a fine line between going over 500 in the league and winning 18, 19 games in this league. Look, there was a fine line early in the season last year in having a really good lead-up to SEC play, and then not so good. Think of how many games we had to win right there at the end, two in the opening couple of weeks. You know, you go back, and we had trouble with Tulane. We had to win some games at the end. I thought it made us better at the end of the season for having been through it, though. Okay, so, Charlie, going into the weekend, Landon Sims on Friday, awaiting to hear the release of the rest of the rotation, kind of have our thoughts and our feels. If you were to look at this team, and you say, okay, this is the thing that's going to surprise fans. What would you say it's going to be? The use of pitchers. I think we are going to see a very different usage than perhaps the message boards have led us to believe. And I may be wrong about that. But I think we're going to see guys like Cam Tuller used in some big critical situations that a year ago you might not have anticipated. I think you're going to see Preston Johnson used different. He may become – your Landon Sims of a year ago in terms of how you used him. 
So I think that's going to be one of the things that takes some getting used to is how we pitch it this year. And once again, we're in the Farm Bureau studios. Go with the home team at Farm Bureau. Check them out at favorites.com. Agents in all counties in the state of Mississippi, Farm Bureau, the best service and on demand. Saw Henry Hamill down at the Dixie National just the other day. Good to see the hammer. He's getting ready for baseball season as well. So you just can't go wrong with a great customer service at Farm Bureau. So a busy show for you today. A couple of interviews for you. When we come back, we'll talk to Paul Gillier, the coordinator of SEC umpires. He'll join us and see what his thoughts are going into the season and see if there's any kind of points of emphasis going into this year. We'll talk to the voice of the Bulldogs, Jim Ellis, about last year at the very end and get his thoughts and observations as Mississippi State kicks off baseball season on Friday. You're listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. I'm Bart Gregory, along with Charlie Winfield. Time now for our guest line segment, brought to you by our friends at Heartland Catfish. Heartland producing the finest U.S. farm-raised catfish you can possibly find. Over in the Mississippi Delta in Itabina, and one of the great restaurants that they service is Gardenia's in the Alluvian Hotel in Greenwood. You just can't go wrong with anything they do at Gardenia's. One of the best places, just kind of a throwback to the old style, old school days at Gardenia's in the way that they do their Heartland Catfish. You can get it broiled or blackened. Either way, it's fantastic. Charlie, let me ask you this. When you start thinking about the Alluvian in Greenwood, you talk about one of the, you hate to say hidden gems, but that's one of the great places, whether it be the cooking school, whether it be just going and getting away for the weekend, but the Alluvian, you talk about something that's a great asset for Mississippians in a short drive. No, absolutely. I, I don't know. I'm like you. I don't know that I would call it a hidden gem, but it is certainly a gem and gives you a lot of reason to get out of town and get over to the Mississippi Delta now and then. So let's talk to the SEC coordinator of umpires, Paul Gillier, joins us. Paul, hey, we appreciate you taking time with us. It's hard to believe that baseball season is here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Paul, when you look at, and you've been a longtime SEC umpire and now been the coordinator of umpires for the league, when I start thinking about baseball and the league and umpires, I think about the guy who's next door to me, and that's Ron Polk, and about some of the great confrontations that Ron Polk used to have with umpires. It seems to me like the world of replay now is kind of taking away some of those things that, that we used to see in the past. Uh, you're exactly right. Obviously, technology is has come into our, our, our game, and it's uh, taken the discussions, I like to call them. I don't call them arguments. I call them discussions. Uh, maybe early in my career, there were arguments, but uh, the older I got, I like to think of them as uh, two people with a differing a difference of opinion, and we were we were having a discussion. But the technology is allowing us, which is everybody's goal, to get the call right uh, and to make sure that we don't miss something egregious. Uh, I know everybody doesn't agree when we break away from video review. Um, I watch all the replays. I watch the umpires work. I watch the people working in, in the video center. And everybody doesn't agree because everybody looks at it through a different lens or a different perspective. And so we have to be absolutely sure uh, when a decision is made 
one way or the other. And that's what I always challenge the video review officials to make sure they're getting it correct. Paul, I suppose with umpiring, there's a couple of aspects. There is obviously the aspect of understanding the rules, and the second is the application of the rule, getting the call right as opposed to mere understanding. I want to talk for just a minute about the rules themselves as opposed to good call, bad call. One of the things that has been talked about is we kind of have rulemaking years and then non-rulemaking years. Explain a little bit about what goes into that what, what does that mean, and where are we in that cycle? Wait, thanks for the question, Charlie. Um, the, the rule cycle in the NCAA uh, landscape is a, is a two-year cycle. I know the economics always play uh, into printing rule books and things of that nature, but typically we are in a non-rule year. However, we can have points of emphasis, things that were put in place over the last few years that we want to make sure are being emphasized. So 2022 is a non-rule year, but then towards the end of the school, or towards the end of the season, we will start to look at the rules over the last couple of years. We'll take recommendations from administrators, coaches, players, umpires. They'll be collected in the month of May. Uh, They will go to the secretary rules editor to put them into categories, might collect some four or 500 proposed rule changes, try to get it into the categories that it belongs in. Then it goes before the rules committee. Um, there is a division one rules committee made up of uh, athletic directors, administrators, coaches, and then the secretary rules editor and one umpire liaison sits on that committee. And the umpire liaison does not have a vote on that committee. Once it comes out of that committee, it goes through uh, the prop for safety and legal uh, review. And then in September, uh, the rules would be announced, rule changes would be announced, and then obviously the printing of the 23-24 rule. So that's kind of the process in the cycle to get to uh, a rule change here. We're talking to Paul Killier, the coordinator of SEC umpires. Paul, and you mentioned this is kind of that out-of-cycle year, but last year there were some points of emphasis about coaches. You talk about the you know, those conversations that they have, that coaches can't come out past the baseline, can't come out to the home plate area. Is that something that's going to stay in effect this year where you're not going to have a coach running out to second base to argue or call at second base? Yes, that's something that was also uh, updated again for the for the 22 season to stay in place. And again, those are parameters. I don't want to make it sound like that's a rule of somebody having to step one foot across a, a line or barrier, they're going to be ejected from the game. Obviously, we're still in a COVID situation, and they want to be respectful of people's personal space, both the umpire and, and the coach. In our situation with video review, You've seen over the last couple of years just a whole lot more ear tapping going on that they want to go to a video review versus having that on-field discussion. That's not to say a coach isn't going to step into the home plate area, the dirt circle, accidentally, and the the umpire is going to be very respectful and ask them, hey, don't forget, um, let me know what you want. I can hear you from here to get that discussion or that dialogue going. But that rules update is still in effect, and we'll ask them to, to maintain that distance. Paul, in terms of your role with the SEC, obviously I know you do a lot of training of umpires. 
is does evaluation fall under you and how does evaluation take place? Is it weekly? Is it constant feedback? How does that take place within the league? So our evaluation, we, we do evaluate on a regular basis, our coaches, our crew chiefs, and then obviously my observations. I, I watch every conference game. So I see a lot. We do have weekly conversations and we do, I publish a, a weekly or semi-weekly training video for our umpires. When I see things occur during a game, that whether it's rules oriented, mechanics oriented, game management oriented, we produce it, we edit it to make sure that we, we never want to embarrass a coach or an institution or any, uh, any participant. And we just try to get it down to the nuts and bolts and how, on how we can use something from a learning experience to make sure it's not duplicated. Or when we do have something that's very positive, we want to make sure that it gets out to the masses when something was handled correctly on how to handle a certain situation. The evaluation, uh, uh, the commissioner gets to see the evaluations and I see the evaluations uh, that come in. Like I said, the coach gets to evaluate each on fire from, from the crew that weekend, along with the reason people are crew chiefs is they've typically got a, a plethora of experience and they've been around the game. They know what's supposed to be done. And then they also grade themselves. I, I spent 24 years on the field in the league. And I can tell you, there's nobody was harder on me than myself. if something that went wrong. So I trust my crew chiefs. They're a reason they're in a leadership position. And then again, from my own personal observations, that all goes into the evaluation. So let me ask you this question, watching that many games, what to you is the thing that people like Bart and I get wrong the most? What do commentators most often confuse when you're watching games where you want to pick up the phone and say, you guys are missing it? Wow. First of all, the, the one thing about the SEC that I think we're very fortunate is a lot of people are invested in baseball in the SEC. And just like we're sitting here having this conversation, have taken the time to educate themselves. I don't see a lot of that. I do see because we are fans of the game or we're fans of the institution, somebody sees something a certain way. If they don't understand the actual elements of the rule, they may see it their way for their team. And they start to expound upon something like that without actually knowing the details or the intricacies of a, a particular rule. And that's the one thing that our umpires do know. They're tested on an annual basis. Um, they go through an NCAA clinic. They're tested on the rules and they have to pass this rule test and be in place. And they know the minute details of, of, of every rule. And again, you asked the question earlier about, you know, seeing things. You don't want to get too technical on a particular rule. I use an old basketball analogy of an advantage, disadvantage. You know, some things would be a violation of the direct rule, but it doesn't have any bearing on a particular play. So there are things that occur that umpires see, but you want to make sure that it is an actual violation of a rule. But the announcers, I think both television uh, and radio uh, have done an outstanding job, uh, number one, of trying to acquire the information that it takes to broadcast correctly. Uh, we just held a, a media uh, event just a few minutes ago and everybody is interested in the rules to make sure that they're educating their audience to the best of their ability. So I'm very thankful. Paul, from a procedural standpoint, and one of the things that, that sometimes you may not know is is when there is review, 
and whether it be initiated by the coach, whether it be initiated by the umpires, and then the process, especially in league games. Of course, in non-conference games, they, they have a designated area. The umpires, you know, two umpires from the field will go and take a look at that. But league games, are there multiple people sitting in Birmingham that are making the discussions at two guys watching one game? Is it a situation where you have a designated three or four umpires sitting there? And, you know, we had a, we had a situation a couple of years ago, it was really funny, of – in our booth, we had an Ole Miss game on, and we had our game in front of us, and they had a review going on at the same time that we had one, and it was taking an inordinate amount of time. And we kind of joked and said, hey, I wonder if we're trying to get in the queue, if we're the second game that's going to get that call. What's the procedures once they go to initiate review? So the procedure is twofold. Number one, there's a line of communication, and we have to be very careful that our communication is – uh, succinct, appropriate, efficient, because obviously we're not trying to slow down the game. But we also want to make sure that both ends of the spectrum are hearing what the other person is saying. So communication is very valuable. Um, we learned that if once we put those headsets down with a field, we have no way to come back to that field. So some we, we have audio cues that are used in and out of the video review process to make sure that the people take can take their headset off when they hear this getaway buzzword, so to speak. So that was one of the things, again, we had growing pains years ago. We learned as to do that. So when that, when the on-field crew puts their headset on, they're identifying what location they're at. Obviously, the video review center can see them break away and head towards the headset. The video review official that's assigned to that game is starting to take a look at it. The technician is queuing it up and running through every possible angle. The complexity of the review obviously determines the amount of communication that has to take place. If it's a little bit more, you can have dual challenges. If you've got things that are made, the coach is asking to make sure something is being looked at or the field umpire wants to make sure something is looked at versus maybe just a simplistic safe out at first base. So we want to make sure that communication is proper. The video review official, if it's a simple and it's, an easy confirm the other official is there's two officials that are helping make that decision. As I said, they have to make sure that they agree before they can overturn a call. And that's, that's the, that's the checks and balances that are in place. That is during our regular season. That's the reason two people go to review and non-conference games. The two video uh, officials look at every play in the replay center, the video center. And when we're in the conference tournament, there is a, a lead video replay official and a backup official. So we don't just put it on one person. Very much football's got the in-stadium person and the person back in Birmingham that are, are having dialogue to make sure that we get this call correct. Paul, I know in non-rulemaking years, it seems like we have points of emphasis. And when you go to games very early, you can almost tell what those points of emphasis are. Even as a fan, you can say, ah, they're, they're looking at that this year. You can see that in basketball too. As a fan coming to a game this year, what am I likely to notice saying, oh, man, they're, they're focused on that this year? The main thing you're going to see is uh, the speed-up rule that was put in place, and there's been a lot of clarification behind it. been able to pull some sample videos to show people what it is, and that's the 20-second action rule. If you were paying attention last year, towards the end of the year, you started to see some violations. As people got more comfortable with it, understood what the rule was about and what was an actual violation and what wasn't a violation as it occurs with the 20-second action rule in the tournament. And then you saw it in Omaha 
And then you will see that very early on. We've had two training sessions with a heavy point of emphasis around the 22nd action rule. And that is a pitcher has to drive some type of action with runners on base in order not to violate the 22nd action rule. And there's certain things that when he comes set or when he winds up, the clock stops. And that, that time frame or that time element will be kept by the third base umpire uh, in that situation. So you can look to see some, and it's a warning per pitcher per game. So the first violation is just the warning. The second violation would be a ball call. Typically, once you explain to a pitcher or coach what's happening, then they were able to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Paul, we appreciate you joining us. Hey, you guys do a great job every year of kind of keeping us abreast of, of what's going on as far as rule changes. We appreciate it. Hey, hey, listen, no matter what happens, I promise to not let Charlie give out your cell phone or your email address on the air if something happens. i tell you this. I bet a Sunday afternoon for you – it's pretty tough. You're riding down the road. Hey, it's been a quiet Sunday, and then about 5 o'clock, bam, you get just the text messages and emails just out the wazoo. Um, the weekends are, 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 very, are, are very interesting. I'll leave, it, I'll leave it at that. And it's not just on Sunday afternoons. It, it's, it's after each and every game. Uh, but I've been involved with the SEC going on 32 years now from a very young umpire uh, aspect. I enjoyed my time on the field. I missed my time on the field. I'm very fortunate to still be involved in the game. You guys, you mentioned a name a few minutes ago, and if you're still sitting there right next to him, tell hello to Ron for me because I always try to find him at the tournament and everything. I think you'll find some very interesting comments about Ron makes about me. I love working his games. He knows that. Um, and a true ambassador of the game of baseball and what he did back in the early years. Believe it or not, I worked on his games my very first year in college baseball long before I got into the SEC. So I was around him a long time and enjoyed it very much. Paul, we appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thanks for taking the time out. And that's Paul Gillier, coordinator of SEC umpires. Charlie, hey, looking at that conversation, and, and hey, listen, there's going to be times this year where I get frustrated and you try to rein me in, and we're going to get frustrated with umpires sometime throughout the year. But I will say this. What Paul Gilgay has done over the last couple of years to try to communicate more with us, with broadcast guys, and it's been really good. The transparency with the league, with its umpires, with us, with the TV guys, has been really good. Well, and I wish that I had asked him about Perry Costello and his fine officiating, but that probably would have been a little bit out of bounds. No, you know what I really would like to have asked, and we'll have to make this our question for next time. How much as an umpire coordinator are you okay with home plate umpires kind of having their zone? Think about how many times we talk about, well, Tony Walsh has a particular zone. Perry Costello's got one that's roughly four feet off the plate. But how much, as long as you're consistent, is it okay to have your zone behind the plate? And how much they just try to teach a guy, no, this is the zone. So we've got more to talk to Paul about maybe before this season's over. More questions than answers. That's kind of how I leave that conversation. Because there, there's so much in baseball that is subjective. And, well, great conversation with Paul. And once again, that conversation brought to you by our good friends at Heartland Catfish. Heartland producing the finest U.S. farm-raised catfish anywhere. And once again, 
Head on over to Gardenia's in the Alluvian Hotel in Greenwood. You just can't go wrong with that broiled or blackened catfish that's provided by our good friends at Heartland. When we come back, we'll talk to the voice of the Diamond Dogs. Jim Ellis will join us next. You're listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. I'm Bart Gregory, along with Charlie Winfield. Good conversation with the SEC coordinator of umpires, Paul Gillier. And now a chance to talk with the voice of the Diamond Dogs, Jim Ellis. Jim's going to join us right here and in the Farm Bureau studios. And we'll look back at last year. And this conversation brought to you by our friends at Country Pleasing Sausage. Country Pleasing, produced right here in the state of Mississippi. Down in Florence, Mississippi, on Highway 49, a country meat package. You just can't go wrong with anything Country Pleasing. Of course, they were a big sponsor of the Dixie National Rodeo. I went down there this past weekend. Charlie, the first thing that Sims wanted to do is go get him a sausage dog at the concession stand. Of course, it was country pleasing. Well, I still have a little bit of country pleasing. I have not yet tried the alligator. Trying to get up the courage. I hear it's really good, but I've uh, I've been through just about everything. That's the only one on my list that I haven't tried yet, but hey, as you said, haven't gone wrong yet with anything from country pleasing. So we're joined now by the voice of the baseball Bulldogs, Jim Ellis. And, Jim, we really haven't had a chance to talk since last year at the end of the season. And coming in now, we've got a new season of baseball. It's a completely new team. But before we get looking into what to expect out of this year's team, just take us back. You've been doing this for a long time. And to have a chance to call a national championship game, how special was that to you? Well, it was special. I mean, everything about it was special. Uh, the, the season, with all its ups and downs, was special to me. I, you know, we had what we knew was a good ball club. I think we all felt like it was a good ball club throughout the year. Uh, the, the SEC tournament was so disappointing, uh, and, and you wondered whether this team was going to get it together uh, for the end run, and, and they did. I mean, they played their best baseball in the postseason. I think that's what it's all about. And then – Obviously, I, we had some tremendous games in the first round. You know, in the in the pre-championship round, I thought we had some tremendous ball games that we we showed uh, the kind of grit you have to have to win a college World Series, and then to uh, to get ourselves in the in the position that we were in against a Vanderbilt team who uh, we really thought we should have won two out of three on the road against them in Nashville, but we didn't. And uh, and and we uh, obviously in that first ball game had a tough ball game, lost. Uh, knew that we had to have a Bednar who had had a great uh, series to pitch well, and he did. We just we just did what we had to do. It, when the final out was made, I thought I felt relieved. I, I, Everett was in the back of the uh, Everett, the, uh, our our famous bus driver. He's more famous than the radio broadcaster, the athletic director, uh, anybody else. But anyway, Everett's back there, and he's on pins and needles, and we got this big lead. And I kept saying, "Hey, you know, we're fine." We're, and uh, he he got mad at me because he he didn't want he didn't want anybody to act like uh, this game was going to be won. But when we won it, uh, a lot of relief that we were able to do it. Uh, I thought back. To 1979, uh, first time I'd ever been to the College World Series. We played decently well, uh, won a game, lost a couple of games, close. We should have, I think we should have, would have won the uh, the third game and stayed alive, and we didn't. But, and I thought about old Rosenblatt 
and about the 8,000 people that were scattered around and, and watching and, and sitting in a little bitty cubicle of a press box and having to make that climb up the back of Rosenblatt on the ladder to get to the, to the press box and, and uh, how primitive it was compared to the Taj Mahal that I was sitting in and the atmosphere in that stadium. And I thought, man, the College World Series in the last 40 years has gone from being a really good event, becoming one of the premier events in college athletics. And, and, and to be the winner in the one last year in the field that we were in, uh, under the circumstances that we were playing, about as good as it gets. Jim, you used a word there talking about last year's team, and you mentioned grit. I, I was talking with somebody the other day, and I said, for me, that's really the most defining characteristic of that team a year ago. Not the talent, not the pitching, not the hitting. Obviously, it was all really good. But it seemed to me that grit was the defining element of that team. Do you see it that way? Yeah, I really did. I thought, number one, we had good veteran leadership. With a Tanner Allen, uh, a Rowdy Jordan and that crew, we had had good uh, leadership there. We had some good leadership on the pitching staff. Uh, I thought the coaching staff did a great job with the ball club. They kept that ball club on an even keel. Uh, Coach Lamonis and, and Coach Foxhall uh, seemed to me, it, and, and Coach Gotro and the whole staff, Cheese, I mean, it's a, it's a good staff, but they did a great job of keeping that ball club uh, on an even keel when they were up and when they were down. They refused to get down on the ball club or any individual player, and they uh, kept everything on a positive note. I thought they did a great job of, uh, of just negotiating. I mean, it's a grind. Of college baseball season's gotten to be a grind when you play 70 games or so, and, and it's uh, over a fairly constricted amount of time. We talk about the pro season, obviously, is a much longer uh, season, much many more games, but it's a fairly tight, and, of course, we got kids in class a lot of that time also, but, but I thought they did a great job of keeping the ball club on an even keel, and the grit and the leadership on that ball club and the way they came together were, were certainly some of the defining things. Jimmy, you mentioned a moment ago about relief, about just having a relief of winning it. And, hey, this program has great people and has had a lot of great people. And, you know, we talked to Matthew Maniscalco last week, and one of the things he said was what I thought was cool about Mississippi State was that program is more important than just one player. Whether you come in, you go, it's, it's more important than one person. And you start looking at the fan base, you start looking at the stadium, you start looking at the, the old players that have come through the program. But it's almost like, you hate to say it's, it's, it's a club you couldn't get into, but it's almost like now you can go to Baton Rouge or you can go to Nashville, you can go to Athens who won a national championship. It's not like we didn't belong, but it was always that final, that piece of the puzzle that was missing. It's amazing how, like you said, relief, it was more relief to me, than, than it was anything else. Well, it shows you what Mississippi State feels about itself. They feel like they are one of the elite programs in baseball. And really, their resume over the last 40 years or so have been pretty elite. I mean, it's one of the teams uh, that when people think about college baseball, I think this is one of the first 10 teams that comes to mind. And so uh, I think that they felt like they should have and we've had some teams that have gotten close, and we've had some teams that maybe maybe should have. I don't know. But you know how it is. When you get to Omaha, anything can happen. 
I think about uh, what Florida State going, what, 13 or 14 times in a row that they were unable to to get a win. I mean, with some great ball clubs. I, I still think back to 1990 when we beat that really good Florida State team that here in our regional, they didn't even get to Omaha. We've not gotten to Omaha, just like Ron Polk has always talked about. If he could have gotten the 1989 team to Omaha, he felt like he had a great chance to win it with that ball club. But that's how hard it is uh, in a game of baseball to get there. Uh, and you look who gets into the, uh, to the finals, into the, into the World Series, and who gets there. And the teams oftentimes that are picked at the first of the year don't get there, and the team puts things together and gets there. Looking at baseball, in football right now, and there's so much talk around the country about how there's really four or five teams that each year right now that can win a national championship. And then you look in basketball, you start the season, and people say there may be seven to eight, maybe ten teams that could win a national championship. When you go into a baseball season and just looking at the landscape of college baseball now, it seems like, am I wrong by saying that baseball may be tougher because you have so many more teams that are at the elite level that can win it all? Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that. And the thing is, on any given year, a team without a lot of background where they're thought of as a great baseball program uh, can get the right mix of players and have a chance to run through it. And you, you would never see a, you know, a college of Charleston or a – uh, I can think of other, you know. Coastal Carolina. Uh, Coastal Carolina. Fresno State. State. I mean, you know, you, you would never see one of those teams playing for the national championship in football. But in baseball, it's very, very possible. And, and part of that is, I think, the uniqueness of the sport, the dominance of having, if, you know, if you've got three, three really good starting pitchers, you might not be, look on paper that good, but you might win a, a ton of ball games and have a chance to get to Omaha. So uh, there, there are those kind of factors, but, but it is uh, – I think that makes – I think it's a really – for purist baseball, there's so many little intricacies. I think for purist baseball is uh, that, that like to, to try to decipher a sport, baseball has so many little things you have to do well to be able to be a good baseball team because uh, there's no one one thing that that can define a, a baseball uh, program and there's there are a myriad of things uh, and if you do some of them well you can win it I mean if you got got personnel and can do just some of them well you think about this team last year for Mississippi State we were not you know we weren't the best hitting team in the league we, now pitching wise we were pretty good uh, defensive we were okay. Uh, so you know you, you you have to you have to have some things that are that go right, but a lot of it is just catching the right team on the right day. As you look at this team, what do you see as the biggest question mark coming in? I think back to last year, we felt really good about our starting pitching, but it was unproven in many ways. To me, that's a question this year. What do you see as kind of that question marks that you're going to be most interested to see answered? I got two things. As, as I watch this team, and I've watched every scrimmage, I think, this uh, spring but one, either we're going to strike out a lot of batters again this year or we're going to strike out a lot this year, one or the other, because there have been a ton of strikeouts. I, I think the pitching staff has a chance to be really good, but I, I think it's going to be a process of sorting and that's a difficult thing when you have a big staff, a big squad. You've got to find – 
I've always said, used to say you could you pitched with eight or ten guys, Max. I think now it's maybe twelve to fifteen guys. But you got to find the roles and get them identified pretty early, and that's a difficult thing for a coaching staff. But certainly a lot of good arms on this staff. And then position wise, I think this ball club's okay. But the one thing I've said is I've seen a ton of strikeouts. So I don't know whether the the pitchers are going to have another one of these sensational years with strikeouts or whether we're going to uh, fight to put the ball in play some. Uh, but uh, one way or the other, I, I think that maybe maybe you can uh, can figure it all out as the season goes along. I think probably pitchers oftentimes are a little ahead of the hitters in, 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 the, in the early going. Uh, but I think we have a chance to have a solid lineup, and I think we got a chance to have a really good pitching staff. You're looking at the pitching staff last year, and you had so many guys, of course, with a COVID roster, and it was – you would have to say it was almost impossible to manage. And as the season went on, as is, you know, you go to the College World Series, you mentioned, you know, that eight to ten. To be honest with you, when we got to the World Series, it was like six or seven. I mean, because you had narrowed it down. Do you think this year, of course, you lose Bednar, but you've got a lot of arms back. As far as managing the pitching staff, do you think it's going to be easier this year for Scott Foxhall to define those roles than it was last year? Because we were playing some Tuesday night games. And guys hadn't gotten work in two weeks, and we're rolling guys out one inning apiece just to get them some work. Do you think this year may make it easier because you don't have the vast number of guys that you had last year? Yeah, but you still got 18, I think, or 19 on that pitching staff. We had, what, 24 or 25 guys that actually pitched in the game last Crazy. year, which is, is unbelievable. I think the biggest I – mean, I think the thing he's got, he, he really had about six or seven additioning to see who was going to be in the starting rotation. I think he's a little closer now, but he's got to figure that out uh, between now and the opening of the, the college when we play Georgia over in Athens in the first SEC weekend. So he's got about four weeks to figure that out. Uh, but by then, we've got to establish roles. We've got to decide who's the closer. Landon Sims right now is going to be the uh, Friday night starter or Thursday night or whatever you're playing. So uh, it's going to be interesting. I think there's enough arms there, but it's a, uh, it's a challenge. I wouldn't want his job right now trying to figure it all out. As you look around the league this year, I think uh, Bart and I have noticed, you know, obviously LSU's got some additions. They've got a great new player. Arkansas's got some guys back. But it looks like a lot of people are saying the same thing if our pitching holds out. Um, kind of as you look around the league, though, who do you look to kind of be there in the end other than Mississippi State this year? I think there are a lot of teams that could be there. It's hard. There is not a lack of talent in this league. And rosters are still pretty deep. And, I mean, I think that uh, I, I wouldn't want to pick any one team because I would get surprised. I can still see – I certainly think LSU will be good. They had a lot of young players. They've got a chance to be a really good ball club. I suspect uh, that you'll find some teams that we're not really thinking about right now stepping up because I think this league from top to bottom, I mean, Missouri comes in and really played well and beats us twice late in the year. And Missouri, I thought, was probably the weakest ball club in the the league. Uh, I just don't think you can take a weekend off. And I think that I've I've always felt like it's difficult uh, to, to pick a winner in the SEC and and think you've got it done. I'm, I was, you know, we played Alabama. I saw some good things from Alabama who who wasn't particularly good last year. I think Auburn will be better this year again. There's a, a Tennessee. Tennessee's got a chance to be good. 
I don't know, uh, you know, Nick had some players coming back at Kentucky. I mean, you just don't know. But I think I think it'll be a dogfight just like it always is. I, I don't think you'll have a team that just runs away with either the East or the West. Hey, appreciate you joining us. It's game week now. You still get the nervousness before the season starts. I, lo- I love this time of year. I mean, we're, you know, just about anybody, everybody feels like they got a chance to be good. But just to me, nothing beats that opening weekend of baseball. And, and we've got a good opponent this weekend. That's, that really m- means a lot to me. I was looking back at our, our Long Beach State games. Of course, they beat us two out of three on the West Coast. That was right at the start of COVID. I remember we fly out and we get to the airport and a lot of masks in the airport. And I thought, hmm, things are beginning to not be good here. And we get out of the, at LAX and – uh, but but we had we had a difficult series with them. They they played well. We just played okay. We're going to see some of those same guys. They're going to be good. I think they're ranked top twenty five in two or three of the polls. So got a really good opponent. It'll be a good crowd. I would hope. Looks like a little cool on Friday. Good weather on Saturday and Sunday. I'm looking forward to it. Well, we'll have to bundle up. That's the coldest place in America. The broadcast booth at uh, Duty Noble. It's got, one of them. I've already checked my heater out. I got a heater uh, for under my feet, so Jay Powell and Coach Polk won't be fussing about their feet or cold. Well, that's great. Hey, appreciate you joining us. Thank you. And that's Jim Ellis, the voice of the Diamond Dogs. Friday afternoon, two o'clock, Mississippi State at Long Beach State, and good to talk to Jim. And once again, this conversation brought to you by our friends at Country Pleasing Sausage. Country Pleasing, made right here in the state of Mississippi. Charlie talked about the alligator a moment ago. It's very mild. I like it. I like it a lot. i tell you what else I like. I like just the original. The original, jalapeno cheddar. The andouille is fantastic. It's still cold enough for some red beans and rice. And so, once again, thanks to our great friends down in Florence, Mississippi, at Country Meat Packers, Henry Cooper, and the gang at Country Police. Charlie and I will come back with a final word. You're listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back. Final segment of Out of Left Field presented by Farm Bureau. I'm Bart Gregory along with Charlie Winfield. Get to talk with Paul Gilliard and then Jim Ellis, the voice of the Bulldogs. Get his thoughts and observations. And So, Charlie, here we are, man. Let me ask you this question. You and I have talked about this extensively, about Landon Sims getting a third pitch. And now that you're at the season – and now we're at the point right now where we're not trying to dig too deep and just come up with our own philosophies. How big do you think it is having the third pitch for Landon Sims? Not terribly. And what I mean by that is if you go back a year ago, how much did Will Bednar use another pitch? He just happened to have two very elite pitches, and you can win a lot of games in college baseball with that. But I go back to on that third pitch, it doesn't have to be a dominant pitch. It doesn't have to be a plus pitch. If you're going to use it, just show it now and then. Just use it just enough so it's on the scouting report that they have to think about it. So how important is it? I think it's a bonus. I don't think it's a necessity. And I recognize people will disagree, but I think if his other two pitches are dominant, you're going to be fine. If, and this is the big if, if you stay out of fastball counts. You know, you go back and you get in a situation where you start running 2-0, and oh, anybody can sit up and hit one when they know what's coming. I'll tell you what, we'll have our deep dig coming on Thursday. We'll knock that out on Thursday night. So one of the questions I've thought about asking you right now, but I'll save it. I want to know your pick to click. Before the season starts, 
offensively and on the mound. We'll talk about those in our Thursday deep dig. And our Thursday deep dig brought to you once again by our friends at Tracks Plus. Tracks Plus with four locations. I saw Daniel Bounds the other day, Fred Fulton, Hoop Weems, Grash Howell, Hickory, Mississippi. You've got the Summit location, Alexandria, Louisiana, and, of course, here, Starkville in Columbus on Highway 82. Saney Equipment, if you're looking to dig some dirt, Barco, if you're looking to clean something out in the in the woods, got that great mulchers. But one of the things they're doing now, Charlie, is they're incorporating Massey Ferguson in three of their locations, in Hickory and Summit in Alexandria, Louisiana, now selling great Massey Ferguson tractors. And so looking forward to our deep dig on Thursday. I want you to come up with your pick-to-click offense and on the mound. I'll work on that. The other thing I'm going to be coming up with is a heavy jacket. So I'm afraid it's going to be a little bit cold towards the end of the day on Friday. And we move the game times. You said last week that was subject to change, and it's always subject to change. Everything is day-to-day that we do. 2 o'clock on Friday, 2 o'clock Saturday, 1 o'clock on Sunday. You've got men's basketball Friday night. That's at 6 o'clock. I guess we've got both of those. I hope the baseball game is quick. we got 2 o'clock baseball, then 6 o'clock men's basketball with Missouri. And so – Charlie, wear your coat and tie to the baseball game Friday afternoon. How about we do that the other way and wear our baseball attire to the basketball game? Let's not ask for permission. Let's ask for forgiveness. Absolutely. Solidarity here. Hey, enjoyed it as always. Once again, thanks to our great sponsors. We're here in the Farm Bureau studios. Go with the home team. Check them out at favorites.com. Our good friends at Country Pleasing Sausage, country meat packers made right here in the state of Mississippi. Heartland Catfish, producing the greatest U.S. farm-raised catfish there is. And once again, go over to Gardenia's in Greenwood. And Tracks Plus, Tracks Plus with the Saney equipment, with Barco equipment for the Forester, and now Massey Ferguson in Summit, Hickory, and Alexandria, Louisiana. For Charlie Winfield, I'm Bart Gregory. Appreciate you guys hanging out with us on Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau.